Good evening to everyone. You can turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, spending, uh, spending a whole day in the book of Hebrews. This time in Hebrews 5, we're having a look at the priesthood of Christ and specifically those things by which Christ is was operating in a manner according to a priest. Of course, he is our priest according to the order of Melchizedek, his forever high priesthood, one who now, having completed the perfection of salvation, ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. Uh, I'm going to read Hebrews 5, the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll have a look at this for our Lord's Supper meditation. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have become and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Amen. Well, let's pray. God, we rejoice in your goodness to us that once again we can gather on this, your Lord's Day, to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us now in this act of worship, the preaching of your word, help us to be attentive, help us to be active, help us to hear with eager ears what the Spirit has for his church. We do pray that we would leave this place having gathered and having observed the Lord's Supper, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, our Savior, that believers having come in would have been edified in the things of worship, and any outside of Christ would leave this place singing the praises of his most high name. And it's in that precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Hebrews 5, uh, we have here in this particular chapter a continuation or something of an elaboration upon what the Apostle Paul ended with in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews 5, 1 begins with that word for, which uh, which brings us a sort of a linking word and a purpose word uh, that continues the thought that was previously given. We see in Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14, I think what we have here is Something of a of a one verse summary, Hebrews four fourteen, a a one verse summary 
of the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The apostle goes on to write in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so at Hebrews 5.1, this beginning with for every high priest, etc., begins an expansion upon this compassion that Jesus Christ as high priest had for us and how it is that Christ was a high priest for his people. And so we're going to look at verses 5 to 11 this evening, but just to introduce, we want to have a look very briefly at verses 1 to 4 to see the human appointment of a high priest and how the Apostle Paul compares that to the high priestly office, that anti-typical perfection of Jesus Christ in affecting the greatness of his high priestly call. So we see here, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed in men in things, uh, is appoint, appointed for men in things pertaining to God. So God appoints priests from among men. The text is clear with that. He doesn't appoint angels as priests for men unto God because of what follows here, not only because, but one of the reasons is because of what follows in verse two, the human high priest he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. So it's not the case that God calls angels to be high priests to minister in this fashion for men unto him, but rather that he calls men because those men appointed as high priests can affect compassion, can be uh, of like mind and of like disposition with those for whom they are ministering because they themselves also are subject to weakness. And so we read in verse 3, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifice for sins. We're going to see in the course of this passage that there are comparisons that the Apostle Paul wants to draw between the high priests of old and the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, but that there are also significant differences, of course. And one of those important differences is what we just read. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, being holy, harmless, and undefiled, being that lamb without blemish and without spot, being sinless, does not offer a sacrifice for himself, but perfectly for his people alone. And then the uh, Apostle Paul says, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So he ends this introductory portion before he gets to the Lord Jesus Christ by noting that the high priestly office is one whereby the priest is not appointed by himself, but that priest is appointed, is called by God for that particular service. Which brings us then to the stuff of our sermon this evening, uh, verses 5 to 11, when we're simply going to look at two things, the manner of Christ's honor and dignity as high priest, and then secondly, the character of Christ's execution of his high priestly office. So the manner of Christ's honor and dignity as high priest, first we want to note the title employed, 
uh, here by the Apostle Paul. It says at verse 5, he writes at verse 5, so also Christ. Now, you might not think that's significant, but there is a significance here. The Apostle Paul uses a number of titles uh, applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in this book and elsewhere, of course. We have the Son. We have the Son of God. We have Jesus. We have Jesus Christ. We have a number of titles and a number of, uh, a number of manners by which the Apostle and the writers of Holy Scripture identify the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, it's simply identification. Not that there's no significance and not that there's no meaning, but it might just be simply identification that the one of whom they are writing is Jesus Christ or the Son of God and those sorts of things. Here there is no doubt an intended purpose attached to the high priestly office so that when we read so also Christ, it is not simply an identifier of the one who is high priest, but it stresses the fact that he is an anointed priest that he is the anointed one, that bearing of the meaning as Mike read Psalm 2 this morning uh, with regards to the anointed in Psalm 2. That's the the word that's translated Christ that we have very often uh, in our New Testaments. And so we have this reference of Christ, this identifier of Christ to speak with respect to the high priest, uh, the high priest that he is, that he is the anointed one, the anointed priest for new covenant blessing. So we want to note that particular title. And secondly, we want to see here that there was no self-appoint, a self-appointment by Christ unto his office as high priest. In fact, that's what the verse specifically says here. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. So it wasn't a self-appointment, but rather he was appointed by God to be such. And it's brought to comparison with the high priests of the old covenant. Remember verse one, for every high priest taken from among, uh, from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. So God appointed men in the old covenant to become high priests. In the new covenant, it is no different. Christ having taken upon himself our humanity for the role of high priest, not that alone, but for the role of high priest, he is uh, anointed or appointed Um, or designated such by God. And as we'll see in a moment, it was a designation that goes into eternity past with respect to the covenant of redemption, that in due time, according to the compact between the three persons and the designation, uh, the the designation according to that pre-temporal discourse between the father and the son, the son would in due time come forth, born of a woman to serve in this context as high priest unto the people. And so it was not a self-appointment, but it was a divine ordination. Thirdly, this was an honoring according to his assumed humanity. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. In this text, we need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is receiving glory by virtue of his, the execution of this office as high priest. As the Son of God, one with the Father, consubstantial with Father and Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ cannot receive glory. He has unmitigated glory. Our Second London Confession of Faith, with respect to speaking here with respect to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he does not receive glory in that manner. The confession writes, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, 
is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So we need to appreciate here that Christ, as God, cannot receive glory because he has unmitigated glory, being himself divine, one with the Father and the Spirit. Now, we render unto him, we give him glory, but that is not us as creature adding to the creator's glory as if he can receive something that he is in lack of, but rather that we are extolling him. We are lifting praises unto God, to the one who has unmitigated glory in and of himself. And so when we read here, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. This was an honoring or a dignity or a glory with respect to his assumed humanity. John Owen writes, but he was man also. Just before I finish that quote, this, this particular passage is used by many errorists and heretics in the history of the church to argue against the deity of Christ. We saw that this morning in Hebrews chapter one, where there we, there we have this positive assertion concerning the, the, the unmitigated glory of Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Here, for example, the Sicinians in the 17th century would grasp upon, would uh, seize upon verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself. And they would say, well, there you see, Christ can't be God because here it says it says that Christ could not glorify himself, but rather he relies upon another to glorify him. And of course, the answer is, as it is given here by John Owen, but he was man also. You see, we would we would jettison or we would be able to cast off a lot of Christological errors and problems if we simply as Christians came to the solid real, realization or impressed upon ourselves prayerfully always, the solid realization that Jesus Christ is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that when we come upon, upon texts that speak of Christ in a lowly manner, for example, when he eats, when he weeps, when he is tired, and those sorts of things, we can see that those uh, speak with respect to his humanity. And when the Bible speaks of lofty things, we can see that those are speaking with respect to his deity. So when we come here and we read, so also Christ did not glorify himself, we can agree with Owen, but he was also man. And these words are spoken not with respect unto his divine nature, but his human. It was so unto his human nature, even as it was united unto the divine, for it was capable of glory, of degrees of glory, and an augmentation in glory. And he cites John 17, 1 and 1 Peter 1, 21. Many have argued from John 17, 1 that Christ somehow was diminished in his glory during the incarnation. But uh, John Owen here, as with Orthodox Christianity throughout the centuries, acknowledges that it's speaking with respect to his human nature. God cannot waver or wax and wane in degrees of glory and cannot be augmented in glory, but Christ in his assumed humanity can. And so once again, this is an honoring, and this is a glory according to his assumed humanity. And what was it? What was this glorifying? What was this honoring? What was this dignity? 
Well, I think we can conclude from the pages of Scripture and from the book of Hebrews itself and from the context as we move towards verse 7 and following that it was the perfection of his saving work. He was glorified in the act of doing what the Father sent him to do. He received honor and dignity by virtue of being the anointed and appointed and ordained high priest to effect the salvation of a multitude that no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And upon the heels of the perfection of that work, uh, perfectly executing the work that the Father sent him to do, he's exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high where he receives glory, dominion, and a kingdom. And so therein we can see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his completion of this high priestly office. The person, of course, who became high priest, fourthly, is divine. Notice the, 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 well, before we move on, we want to make note of this. Um, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said of him. So it's not Christ who glorifies himself, but it is here the Father uh, that says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and also in another place you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Christ doesn't honor or glorify himself, but rather the Father, the one who said to him, you are my son, and the one who said to him, you are a priest forever, it's that one who glorifies Christ in the execution of his perfect work. And so we see here that the person who became high priest is divine. We don't need to spend too much time on this because we spent some time on it this morning. But once again, Psalm 2, a great reading for this evening, and this uh, the Apostle Paul allude, not, not just alludes to it here, as he did in Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 to 4, but here we see that he specifically quotes Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Just a brief excursus for a moment on, as he also says in another place, if Pastor Mike ever says that, that uh, you know, it says somewhere in the Bible, such and such, he has warrant from the Apostle Paul here to say that, because the Apostle Paul doesn't say, as he also says in Psalm 110, he says, as he also says in another place. So, uh, Mike, you have uh, you have Paul's blessing. To, <laughs> um, but getting back to sacred things, we have um, we have here the reality that Jesus Christ is set forth as the divine one who assumed humanity for our recovery. Never, never tire uh, Christians of of hearing you know that truth. You know, uh, in the reformed uh, in the reformed faith we we preach often of christ and there's there's a good reason never never tire of hearing of christ every sunday never tire of hearing of christ as the one uh, as that that one glorious in his divinity who condescended in infinite condescension to assume our humanity for our redemption and for our recovery never tire of that never roll your eyes because therein we have our blessedness in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's spoken of here once again, as it was alluded to in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Some um, uh, some miserable souls seize upon today I have begotten you and, and try to force that as a time-bound uh, a time-bound birth or a time-bound begottenness because it says, today I have begotten you. I think what we are to capture from the language of Psalm 2, and as it's reiterated in the New Testament, is the fact that insofar as the Father is divine and timeless, 
so too then is any begottenness also eternal and timeless, so that the one begotten is just as eternal as the one who is begetting. And you see, with respect to the word today, we have the glorious reality that in our God, or with respect to our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is always an ever-present and undivided and non-chronological today. In his boundless perfection, in his timeless and boundless perfection, it is an ever-present and boundless and eternal now with respect, excuse me, with respect to God. There is no antecedent and subsequent in God. There is no before and after in God. There is no yesterday and tomorrow in God. There is truly really no today in God, unless we speak of it as a non-chronological, ever-present and eternal now. And so when God says, today I have begotten you, or when we read, when he reveals to us this language, today I have begotten you, we are to understand it as ascribed to God in the measure of eternity, not in the measure of created time. And so Christ, the one alluded to here as the high priest, not alluded to, the one spoken of here as high priest, is also eternal, is also atemporal, is also timeless in his divine perfection, and we have the reality of his eternal begottenness set forth, set forth, truly his deity, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the person who becomes high priest is divine. Again, an undiminished essential likeness with the Father. Fourthly, it was a unique priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. Notice the language as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So as there are similarities that the Apostle Paul is drawing here to the earthly priesthood in the Old Covenant that is being appointed, taken from among men and being appointed by God, there are also dissimilarities, and this is where we find one of them. You see, because Christ was of the tribe of Judah, he was not of the tribe of Levi, and it was then impossible that he should become a high priest if uh, if that's the case, he's from the tribe of Judah, but he has a unique priesthood as the Bible typologically represents in the Melchizedek of the Old Testament, and as it specifically and anti-typologically asserts in the New Testament, that is with, records to, uh, with regards to fulfillment, that he is a priest forever according to a different order from that of Levi. He is according to the order of Melchizedek, that one without days, without beginning and end, without mother and father. So the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike the earthly priests of Levi, he has an abiding priesthood. He has an eternal priesthood. He is Christ, the forever high priest. And so his priesthood is unique. As much as there are necessarily uh, necessary similarities drawn between the human priesthood of the old covenant, there is just as much and vitally dissimilarities drawn by the Apostle Paul in order to assert that there is something special, there is something infinitely special about the high priestly office of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, under the manner of Christ's honor and dignity as high priest, we want to note that this was according to that eternal compact, the covenant of redemption. 
the language that we have in the book of Hebrews repletively, or we should say that maybe not repletively because not every verse speaks to the covenant of redemption, but through and through, uh, we have the apostle Paul bringing forth the eternal reality of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't some temporal plan F that God came up with in order to execute something in the salvation, uh, in salvation economy that um, was brought forth because previous plans failed, was not something that God uh, later in time uh, stirred up in order to bring many sons to glory, but rather it was from eternity past, if we can use that language, from eternity past that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit purpose to save a multitude which no man can number by virtue of the perfect work of the high priest, even Jesus Christ the Lord. It was according to that covenant of redemption. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, touches upon that designation in eternity past where the father would send, would purpose to send the son, and that the son, according to that compact, would purpose to come, according to divine appointment, to redeem his elect. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, not only speaks to that eternal compact and that designation wrought in eternity past between the persons of the Trinity, but also then in time and in history to the execution of that work. And so we have the one purposed in eternity past to come forth to be high priest, and then in due time he does come forth and he does what he was sent to do. Brethren, I think we, uh, whenever we come to contemplations of, whenever we come to speaking of and rehearsing the reality of the covenant of redemption, it's something like so many other things in, in the articles of Christianity that ought to stir our heart to joy and marvel. Because we don't have a bumbling God like those of the pagans that just stumbles around and, you know, tries to interact with creation and humanity in, in an almost man-like way. We have a God eternal, uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections, who before the foundation of the world, according to that divine perfection, purposed amongst the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to save in due time uh, the elect of God and that perfectly through the work of Jesus Christ. What a glorious eternal plan we have in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we observe the Lord's Supper in a number of minutes here, we ought to, we ought to reflect upon the covenant of redemption as that foundation for Christ's doing and dying and, and rising again. The love of God as that foundation. The grace of God as that foundation. The mercy of God as, as that foundation. You know, it is a remembrance that we have in, in the Lord's Supper, among many other things. One of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is, as Christ had commanded, that we would remember him until, we, until he comes again. And part of that blessed remembrance is to reflect upon, to have sweet contemplations of the eternality of the plan of redemption, that it was not some subsequent plan antecedent to plans or subsequent to plans that failed, but rather it was from the outset the one plan to save the elect unto the glory of God. Well, let's move on then lastly here and secondly to the character of Christ's execution of his high priestly office. First off, we want to note that it was real. Notice the text here at verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I think often we can reflect upon the doctrine of Christ without perhaps moving on and stepping forward into reflecting upon the glorious practicality that these things were real. They were historical. They, it really was the case that the second person of the triune God assumed our humanity. It's not just the hypostatical, the hypostatic union isn't just, you know, something for the lofty towers of, uh, um, um, you know, uh, of ivory theology. This is the truth that Christ came into this world, sinners to save. He really did take upon himself man's flesh. He took upon himself humanity. You think about that for a moment, and, and it's sometimes it's hard to think about it because it's so glorious and it's so wondrous that the creator of the worlds, that uh, the creator of the, the rolling spheres uh, took upon himself man's nature, became man, that the one who set the stars in place became Man, that the one who drew forth Adam from the dust of the earth and 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 um, and breathed the spirit into his nostrils took upon himself man's nature and walked upon the dust of the earth. That the law giver became the law keeper in our stead. That the covenant giver became the covenant keeper in our stead for covenant breakers. That the one who made all things was made of a virgin. These things are glorious, and we ought to reflect upon the fact that these things are real, that in time and in history, in the fullness of the times, as the apostle writes in Galatians 4, he was brought forth, that the son did come forth, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. The language here speaks of in the days of his flesh, who in the days of his flesh so this speaks no doubt with respect to his incarnation. This is the language that's used by uh, in the New Testament by the New Testament authors. Remember in John chapter 1, we have, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this speaks no doubt with regards to his incarnation, that the Lord Jesus Christ really did become flesh. What a glorious condescension. It has probably more narrowly here, though, a specific reference, not that it excludes the incarnation, but by virtue of the incarnation, he suffers, uh, he suffers and he casts up vehement cries and tears to the Father. And so the days of his flesh speaks, yes, largely to the incarnation, but more narrowly and peculiarly here with regards to his suffering as man in the incarnation. He offers up prayers and supplications, vehement cries for, uh, to him who is able to save him from death. He's heard because of his godly fear, and he learned obedience. These things all speak to that suffering according to his humanity. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered in our stead. Solemn reflections as we engage in the Lord's Supper here, as we reflect upon the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered in his humanity and that it was a suffering of obedience to the Father, but a vicarious obedience for us. He suffered for us. It wasn't just a suffering, though it was a suffering, but it was a 
substitutionary suffering, if you will, in the stead of all who the Father had given unto him. We can, with this language or from this language, no doubt what is in view is Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus Christ is on his knees with sweat as droplets of blood, crying out to the Father, if it, uh, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As he's crying out to the Father there, no doubt also in view, these vehement cries, these loud cries as he's calling out on that cross, that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this isn't just physical suffering. That is the the gross error of the Roman Catholic Church to confine this only to the physical sufferings of the Lord and not to move necessarily past that to speak of the travail of soul, the spiritual, the soul sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we read of suffering, when we read of vehement cries, when we read of these things, we need to understand that it was not so much the fear of physical pain as it was the godly fear as it was the as it was the human apprehension of what was coming in bearing the wrath of god and in bearing the infinite uh the infinite justice of god in the stead of his people we need to move past the idea as gross and as horrible as it is that this language is only confined to his physical suffering we ought to certainly solemnly appreciate and glory in the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ went through physical pains in our stead, but remember that he bore God's wrath in our stead as well. And this is wherein we see the weight of these vehement cries, these tears, this suffering. It was real. And as we engage in the Lord's Supper, we ought to reflect upon the realness, the reality of the blessed work of Christ. It entailed, we, uh, secondly, it entailed rather, and we already noted this, a vicarious obedience. The language near the end of verse 8 is, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We ought to acknowledge, and we ought to always acknowledge, that when we speak of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a work from cradle to grave of obedience to the Father, and it was a work from cradle to grave in obedience to the Father and obedience that pertains specifically to our salvation. That is, it was vicarious. It was substitutionary. It was for us, that is, in our stead, in our place, and in our room. And so this obedience is and pertains to and speaks concerning the fact that he did this in our place. His life of obedience, obedience to the law of the Father in our stead, and his obedience upon Calvary's cross. Remember that the Apostle Paul, same author here in Philippians 2, uses the language of Christ, speaking that he was obedient to the point of death, even the cross death even the death upon the cross. And so his whole life is one, uh, is one glorious life rendered in obedience to the Father and that in our place. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper this evening, we ought to have those sweet and solemn contemplations of this Christ who was obedient in our place because we could never be obedient. We are marked by disobedience. We and Adam are marked by disobedience day upon day, even as redeemed Christians were marked by disobedience. We need an obedient one. 
It's not going to be us. It's not going to be an angel. It's not going to be some other man. It's going to be, and it was, and it is eternally, the God-man, even Jesus Christ the Lord, who was obedient in our stead. Glorious salvation. Thirdly, it was efficacious. Maybe just a brief note, and we're drawing to a close as we need to engage in the Lord's Supper here, but just a, a note with respect to obedience. The language here is, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Once again, our minds ought not to be perplexed by this. Oh, but but Jesus Christ is God. How can he learn obedience? Remember that he was also man. We always need to remember that. So this isn't an article or a, uh, this isn't a, um, a phrase that can be cast against the deity of Christ so that the Christian ought to be perplexed. How can God learn obedience? We know, we know that God cannot learn. God himself is knowledge. There is no discursus with God. He doesn't come to know anything. Um, isn't that an, an interesting statement? Nothing ever occurred to God. You know that? Things occur to men, but nothing ever occurred to God because God is eternal. He is himself knowledge. He does not come to learn of things because he is knowledge and the fount of it. But Jesus Christ, of course, as man, is made to learn obedience. And we ought to understand as well here that we can't understand in this some sort of sinful learning of obedience because we can often think of uh, the learning of obedience comes by virtue of disobedience having been uh, having been engaged in. But that's not what we're reading here. This just has to do with the experience of suffering by which he learned through suffering obedience to the Father in executing the covenant of redemption historically. It was an efficacious salvation. Christ really did perform and perfect salvation, verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of salvation to all who obey him. It's in this wonderful language, Jesus Christ is the author of salvation. The Apostle Paul uses this language in Hebrews chapter 12, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ executes perfectly the work that the Father had given to him, there is no failure in the Savior. He executes perfectly the work of salvation. Another blessed thing that we reflect upon as we engage in the Lord's Supper, as the, as the bread represents the body of Christ, as the blood represents the, the blood of, as the wine represents the blood of Christ, we reflect upon the perfection of the saving work of Jesus Christ. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, among many things, that is primary in regards to what is being remembered, the perfect work of the Savior, that he is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's not often used as a text in defense of particular redemption or limited atonement, but I would want to say that it's one of the stronger ones. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus Christ perfects the salvation of the elect, a multitude that no man can number. He doesn't die for every man without exception. He dies for every man without distinction from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And nation. He saves to the uttermost all those who were given unto him. And lastly, this as we bring this to a close, this is worthy, fourthly, of expanded reflection. Verse 11, of whom, now this is actually speaking of Melchizedek, but of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
This is actually speaking with regards to Melchizedek and not to Christ, but it is speaking, no doubt, with respect to Christ by virtue of the fact that having much to say is concerning who Melchizedek was and how he typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He will get to that in uh, in chapter 7 and following. But as a point for this evening to close on, the doctrine of Christ, the character of the execution of his high priestly office is worthy of expanded reflection. We ought not only to learn of Christ on the Lord's day. We ought not only to learn of Christ on, on uh, the night with uh, when Bible study takes place, but we ought to be ever and always the students of the Lord Jesus Christ, learning of our Savior, opening up our Bibles to read of our precious Christ. We ought to always be students of our blessed Lord. As often as you can, go be in the Word, be in good books. Mike can recommend a lot of good books to you to read concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, and there are some great ones. To open up, to elaborate upon the greatness of our high priest, the greatness of our prophet, priest, and king, the greatness of the Son of God, the second of the blessed triune who came into this world, sinners to save. And we come to him now in the Lord's Supper, which is an absolute blessing. We should engage in it with solemn yet joyful hearts as we reflect upon our Savior. Christian, rejoice in him. Unbeliever, believe on him. Stop up your ears against the beckonings of hell and the, the illusions of the world, the allurements of the world, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who is the perfect high priest who gave himself for guilty sinners. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your word to us. We thank you so much for so great a salvation. We thank you for our high priest, Jesus. We pray that you would bless us as we seek to, to know more of him, to learn more of him, to rejoice uh, day upon day and solemn reflections and joyful reflections upon our blessed Christ. And help us now in the Lord's Supper to engage with cheerful and Christian hearts. Help us to reflect and remember well, reflect upon and, and remember well the blessings of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.